Let me encourage you to grab your, grab your Bibles just uh, somewhat symbolically as we go to pray together. God, as we come uh, to this time, uh, this brief moment, we are, we're coming to hear from you. Um, Lord, I know all too well right now that I have nothing to give your people other than, than you, um, your word through the power of your spirit and and you are pleased um, to use even a, a feeble servant who proclaims truth to, to encourage and to equip and challenge and exhort and to lift up the heads of your people. So as we uh, even hold your word in our hands, a word that has been preserved for us, um, a word that was fought to be printed and who people have given their life for God, we, we're thankful that we have your word as that which is a, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and, and is a two-edged sword in our hands and stands ready to cut off all of the things in this life, even our own intentions and ill motives and sinful pride and strip us down to where we see our great need for Jesus. So help us tonight, I pray. As we come to you tonight, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word mightily for the sake of your name and for the great joy of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good to see everybody. Hope you're doing well. Uh, My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. If I don't know you or haven't had a chance to meet you, you can flip to Acts chapter 20. Um. One of the things as we come to, to this section, or maybe many sections in the book of Acts, and any book that's more of a narrative book, uh, meaning that it describes in many ways like a history and a roadmap, even of what a group of people did or what one person did at some point, um, it can be easy to just kind of take it in as information. And so here's what I want to propose to you. I don't know how many of you have ever job shadowed someone. Like you've walked into a job and you've had to shadow someone, they've mentored you on the job, shown you how to do a particular thing, maybe the whole job they've shown you how to do, and you've kind of shadowed them and watched them uh, to not only figure out just functionally how to do something, but how to do it well. And so I want to just propose to you as we look at, at, at Paul's life as a missionary, that tonight there's something of being able to shadow the great missionary Paul, even as we see him go this way and that to and fro as he travels because there's a risk of reading this section and feeling like we're just getting kind of a, an atlas of Paul's missionary travels. But if you view it like you're getting ready to shadow Paul, I think there's a little bit more that we can kind of pull out of this time. And let me say it this way as well. As we, as we hold God's word in our hands, and I'll maybe go back to this at the end, like do we really expect God to speak to us? Like do we come here on Saturday nights right now on Sunday mornings, and do we really anticipate that God is going to speak to us through his word? Not because I'm up here, certainly, but because we believe that God's word is living and active. That's all, that's all I have to give you, is the truth of God's word, is Christ and him crucified. And, and so even in a, a section that can feel just a little bit more descriptive, I just want to encourage us to go with like a real great expectation that God wants to speak to us tonight. Amen? 
Like he wants to speak to you tonight. Like he wants to encourage you and exhort you in ways that quite frankly only his spirit can do. And this meager effort of a sermon that I'm gonna give isn't sufficient, but as Bill reminded me last week that even as we go from this place, there's, a, there's somewhat of an exercise of, of throwing seed on the ground of human hearts in sermon delivery. And as we go, it begins to kind of grow and continue to do its work. And I take great heart in that, especially in a moment where I feel ill-equipped to, to preach something well, which is often. But let's go to Acts chapter 20. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through uh, 16 ultimately, but we'll start by just reading the first couple of verses in Acts chapter 20. So God's word says this, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And we're going to pause there, and we'll, we'll continue to journey on in just a moment. So you might remember if you were with us last week, if you weren't with us, the previous section in, at the end of chapter 19, uh, there was basically a riot in the city of Ephesus. So Paul and really Jesus disturbed the idols of the city. And as a result, there was this massive, explosive riot in the city that ultimately now is kind of moving Paul out of Ephesus. Because when, when the king steps in the room, namely Jesus, like he disturbs idols. He doesn't come to compete with false gods. He comes to, to put his foot on the throat of any competitor. Amen. That's what we talked about last week. So the king, the king Jesus, disturbs idols. And so that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. And now we see Paul turning to go back to Macedonia. So he regroups, gathers with disciples, the church in Ephesus. He encourages them. You can wonder what that looked like. You know, like, hey, I know that was a little bit crazy, but stay true to Christ. Be encouraged, like he's still on his throne. Stay faithful. You can imagine if you were like the church in Ephesus, the only Christian church, by the way, and there was this massive riot because of the one that you follow, you might be a little bit uneasy. So Paul brings them back in. It's kind of like the hottest what we do in some measure, right? We gather as a body of Christ. We're maybe a little bit beaten up from the week, from the world in some ways, but we come together to sing, to hear God's word preached, and to, to, to join in encouraging one another so that we can go out and continue to be true to Christ, to be faithful to his name in this world. And that's something of what Paul did. He gathered them together to provide, encourages them, he encourages them, he moves on to provide encouragement to other believers and churches. So Paul departs from Ephesus and travels across the Aegean Sea. I actually made a map and forgot to bring it. It may not have worked up here. It might be too far away anyways. But you can just kind of see him kind of leapfrog over the Aegean Sea. It's on the north side of the Mediterranean. So he jumps over. Well, he doesn't literally jump. He takes a boat. Um, and he travels across the Aegean Sea to, to Macedonia, where he had been before. This is his third missionary journey. And you can, I've kind of talked to you about this. If you can picture the Mediterranean Sea a little bit loosely anyways, you can picture him doing like an oval kind of around the northern side of the Mediterranean. He takes four tours, as it were, um, three of which were largely kind of in a circular pattern around the northern Mediterranean. 
And he's going back now to areas that he'd previously visited. So he's going to Macedonia, which is north of Greece, north of the province of Achaia, where Corinth is, one of the cities where he planted a church and one of a couple of the letters that are in the New Testament. So in Macedonia, and this is relevant because we're going to see some characters from these places. In Macedonia, he encouraged the churches and believers in places like Thessalonica. Might ring a bell because we have First and Second Thessalonians. These are letters written to individual churches to encourage them after Paul planted the church, as it were, and now revisits these places. The Thessalonica, Berea, and to Philippi. Those are all in the area of Macedonia. And what did it say that he did? He encouraged them. He encouraged them. If, if you were with us when we looked at Barnabas' life, like we stopped to kind of pause to think about the word encouragement because it's really significant. Paul put a, a significant emphasis on encouraging other believers in his ministry. And this, this moment, this brief kind of couple of sentences says that he encouraged the church in Ephesus and he went on to encourage churches in other places. But it's not just like a pat on the back, like, hey, go get them, have a good time, and hope Jesus takes care of you. It's not so much that. Like, it's actually a pretty broad word that means a lot of different things. That the two Greek words together literally mean to come alongside someone for the sake of consolation and comfort and encouragement. So you can picture Paul as a pastor, apostle, coming alongside believers to say, among other things, stay true to Jesus. Like he's worth it. Like keep fighting. Stay true to Christ. That's what we saw Barnabas doing. Like the, the new Gentile church, the non-Jewish church. He went and encouraged them. He exhorted them. You'll see this same word translated exhort in other places. It's like many words of encouragement. We'll kind of unpack that here in just a moment. But Paul put a high value on encouragement. as a central part of his ministry his pattern of encouragement is something we should be used to by now because he went around boldly proclaiming the gospel, making new disciples, and then revisits those same people to encourage them in the faith, to exhort them, to admonish them, to give them many words from God to strengthen their faith in Jesus. He was an encourager. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 23, Barnabas encouraged the church in Antioch to remain faithful to the Lord. Acts 14, 22, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, which they were going through at the time, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 18, 22 and 23, Paul's third missionary journey started with him going from one place to the next in the area of Phrygia and Galatia, strengthening all the disciples. And we can picture it if we, if we give just a moment to kind of think about it. Because we have the context that we're in. There's churches everywhere, right? Christianity's relatively normal. It wasn't so in the first century. They didn't have God's word the way that we have it. To draw from it like fresh, needed, ongoing encouragement every single day we wake up. Most of us have multiple Bibles in our houses readily at our fingertips. It wasn't so with these churches. So what would it have been like for Paul to walk through the door, this pastor, apostle, to walk through and be like, hey, I'm here, I just want you, to, I want you to hear what's been going on in other areas. You're not alone. God is at work in the world. Be encouraged. You're not alone in this. Stay true to Jesus. Keep running after Christ. He's worth it. Stay true to him. 
I know things are difficult, but through many tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom of God. Don't lose heart. God isn't absent. You can see him as a pastor. And we'll see next week just this really wonderful picture of Paul's pastoral heart as he meets with the elders at Ephesus one last time before he leaves. And he kind of unpacks the nature of his ministry. And one of the things he said about his ministry, if you look in chapter 20, go down to verse 18. This is the beginning, and I'll borrow this from next week's sermon. But he says, you yourselves know, he's gathering with the pastors, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I did it day and night, night and day, house to house, in the temple, with humility, in trials, in tears. I've tried to encourage you with my life and with my words. And so we do well to follow his example. And Paul not only encouraged people himself, he actually sent strategically other people to be vessels of encouragement to other churches. Just a couple quick examples. This guy named Tychicus. Ephesians 6.22, kind of at the end of the letter, Paul says, I've sent Tychicus to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Same word, might exhort, encourage, admonish your hearts. Colossians 4.8, in a similar way, kind of end of the book, Paul says, I've sent Tychicus and Onesimus to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Now, it might seem weird to kind of elaborate so much on two simple verses, but it's because I really, after praying this week, um, we could do a whole series on the nature of encouragement and the role it plays in the life of a believer, how we receive it and how we're called to give it. And I, I, want, I want to tonight to at least kind of drop in the room for us. Like encouragement as a believer to other believers is a really significant work of the Spirit of God. To be an encourager. And I think we know that well when we're on the receiving end of encouragement, don't we? Like how significant it can be to be encouraged, particularly by other people in the faith. But you could say it's a fruit of the Spirit of God. A significant part of Paul's ministry was encouraging, exhorting, coming alongside other believers, disciples to strengthen them in the faith and urge them to remain true to Christ. So we have a kind of a tradition in our family. Like every birthday, we had one, we had a couple recently, but most recently, Taylor's birthday, our oldest, was just a, about a week ago, a little bit less than a week ago. And so every birthday, like on the birthday dinner or maybe a little bit post-dinner, we gather as a family and we share words of affirmation and encouragement for the person whose birthday it is. It can be an awkward time. Most of the time in my house, it's accompanied with tears because there's mostly women in my family and they're tender and I love it. I'm a crier a little bit more so than maybe I used to be just because I've absorbed some of that over the years. Um, but we spend some time just affirming the, the sweet things we see in one another's lives. And we affirm each other. Like, and there's, there's a few different layers to this. One is just to acknowledge the grace of God in our lives. Because I don't know about you, I would guess we're all like this to some degree. We can be a lot more mindful of our deficiencies than we can the evidence of the grace of God in our lives. And it's good to be reminded that God is at work. Like it's good for you to be reminded that, hey, God is at work in your life. I was talking to Brian this morning at Belong and 
I'm encouraged by Brian, like him taking steps toward the body of Christ. And he's discouraged in some ways. And I've, I've been discouraged in some ways. And for us to just stop in a moment, for someone to say, hey, I want you to know I see God at work in your life. That's a meaningful thing. That's not just meaningful, it's from God. That's by his design. His, he's put us in one another's lives as catalysts of encouragement. In the same way that Paul would walk into a room and be like, stay true to Christ, the encouragement from believer to believer is much the same. Stay true to him. He's true to you. He's been so faithful to us. Let's stay faithful to him. And just know that God is at work in your life. So this affirmation circle at our home is probably just to acknowledge the grace of God, to draw attention to that, to celebrate and give thanks for his work in and through one another in the way that each individual is a blessing to our family. And then hopefully to, to perpetrate, to promote the same thing moving forward, that we grow and excel all, this, all the more in those areas in our lives. There's so much that could be said here. There's a whole lot of notes here that I had to untangle because I just can't say it all. But let me just give a few brief encouragements. 1 Thessalonians 15 says, Encourage the faint-hearted as a part of the work of the Spirit of God. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, notably one of the places he's visiting in this kind of loop of encouragement, he says, Encourage the faint-hearted. The same word is used in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, as crushed in spirit. Encourage those who need, need their heads lifted up. When was the last time we did that for somebody? Maybe for some of you it's really recent. And you know the joy of being able to be used by God to lift up someone else's head. Maybe it's not as natural for you. Let me just encourage you to grow as an encourager. Choose the people closest to you and start there. As choose your spouse and specifically make it a mission to be a vessel of encouragement to your spouse, choose your roommates, choose those in your small group, and just try to have some rhythm of providing encouragement, and particularly those who are faint-hearted, and maybe words like lift up your head, like take heart, don't lose heart, Jesus wins in the end, so encourage the faint-hearted, 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says encourage one another to walk as kingdom people, stay true to Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness, you're a new creature. And isn't that, isn't that encouraging to know, like in the battle against sin and temptation, like we have everything we need for life and godliness? And that's not just some manufactured encouragement, like, hey, let me figure out what to say to this believer who really is feeling beaten up by temptation, but to say, hey, you know what God has told you? Fellow Christian, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Isn't that encouraging? Like, and we deliver those type of messages to one another. Straight from God. So Mitch can come to me and be like, Matt, hey, take heart. Jesus said it's going to be hard here, but he also said he's overcome the world. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> That's a letter straight from God to my heart. And every single one of us need to be the deliverers of those message, messages, and we also know the benefit of receiving those things, and they should happen really often. Encourage one another to be kingdom people. You're a new creature. Hey, you, you don't have to say yes to, to sin. Like you're a, new, you're a new creature in Jesus. You know the promises for you, Matt, for you, Adam, for you, Chris, is that you get to wake up every single day and you can say yes to God and no to sin. You never had that ability before. Isn't that encouraging? 
That's from the word of God. That's a letter of encouragement from God to your heart from my lips as a deliverer. But it's God's promises. And we're to be encouragers. And Paul made it a business of being an encourager, an exhorter of other believers. Encourage one another to be people of the word. And so much of Paul's encouragement seems to be wrapped up in the fact that he brought truth to bear on people's hearts. As he did this season of encouragement, traveling in Macedonia, that's the the season when Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church, this book of Romans, this massive theological masterpiece. And nestled in that, in one place in Romans 15 toward the end, is this section that I'll, I'll read for us. Actually, let me just go there in my own Bible instead of my notes. I encourage you to read this, but let me just read it for us. I don't think it'll be up here, but you can go there in your Bible if you want. Romans is right after Acts. Romans 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And just, just identify where you hear the word encouragement. There's a couple different spots. Paul says this. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, that is, on Christ. For whatever was written in former days, all the things written of old, including the Old Testament, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What a rich paragraph. The scriptures, God's word, is a word of encouragement. And God himself is the God of endurance and encouragement. So when we give encouragement to one another, we can know that we're following, following in the footsteps of God by following the path of his word and his son. So as I close off this kind of section in here, like, do you see encouragement as a fruit of the spirit? Or maybe something like we see a, a call to reasonableness in the scriptures. Like we'll see some words or admonishments in the Bible and be like, that seems kind of elementary. Do we just kind of write off encouragement as like, yeah, normal people do that. Well, let me just encourage you tonight as you leave to see encouragement as a spiritual call and as a, a fruit of the Spirit of God and make it your responsibility and joyful, joyfully embrace being an encourager to other believers. Do you see it as your responsibility to encourage others? And maybe as we think about our own lives, like so much of our ability to give away like the, the truth of God's word as an encouragement to others is that we have it hidden in our own heart. It's difficult to give away what you don't possess. There's a way in which we're like full cups splashing around, like the truth that's held within. And so as we travel around our different contexts, like we splash in the word of God, encouragement around because it's been hidden in our hearts. We've been encouraged by it first. So as you're reading God's word, you spend time in devotions, you're spending time with God, like expect to hear from him words that encourage your heart and take those very things 
and, and try to make them a, a vessel of encouragement to somebody else. Pray that God would give you opportunity to deliver the very things he's delivered to you as sweet nuggets of encouragement from his word. Let's be encouragers as believers. In verse three, what we see next is that they landed in Greece and Paul spent three months there. When a plot was made against him, this is verse three in Acts chapter 20. When a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. It's so interesting in Paul's story because you read something like this in somebody else's bio, you'd be like, man, this seems really significant. Like someone made a plot like to take his life but we just kind of keep going, Luke. I'm not sure what's up with Luke, but he doesn't seem as a, it's really that big a deal. Like someone plotted to kill Paul, so he decided to change his plans. Sounds like a wise move. But it may have been that there were some Jews he was traveling with. He was trying to make a beeline for Jerusalem to be there by Pentecost, and maybe some of them were upset at just the way he was preaching Jesus. But some of these Jews made a plot against him as he tried to set sail for Syria, so he decided to return again through Macedonia, which is kind of a loop around to where he'll end up uh, over at Troas here in just a moment. So verse four, there's this list. And if you're looking for baby names, there's several really good ones right in this section. So just track with me just for a second. There was Sopater, the Berean, solid. I have no idea what that name means, but somebody in this body needs to name their son Sopater. Let's go. So Peter the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him and of the Thessalonians. You might take note here, there's people from these areas where Paul has planted church and encouraged the believers. There's now individuals journeying with him from these locations. So So Peter uh, from, the, from Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, he accompanied him of the Thessalonians. There was Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So um, Paul makes a loop around the Aegean Sea on top to go back toward Troas, and they instead went ahead of him on via ship over to Troas to meet there. So, but we, Luke says, but we sailed away. Luke was included in this group, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Okay, so... Here's one thing that I just want to highlight from this section. What does it matter that all these people traveled with Paul? There's a couple things I'll highlight. One is that fruitful disciples make other disciples. So these individuals came from areas that were reached by the gospel. And so I, we could reasonably say that these people traveling with Paul were people that were, were reached in the harvest for the harvest. So say it another way, fruitful disciples make disciples. John Stott put it this way, talking about this group of seemingly random individuals. He says, these men were the fruits of mission and they became the agents of mission. That's us, every single one of us. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, we're among the list of these fairly random names as those who were reached by the gospel that now are going around like little clay vessels holding treasure delivering treasure to the world. That we were the fruits of, of mission. And now we become the agents of mission. So fruitful disciples make other disciples. That's what Jesus said when he called the disciples originally. Like, follow me and I'll do what? I'll make you fishers of men. You're not going to be fishing for fish anymore. You're going to get some men. You're going to fill the kingdom with all sorts of men from every tribe and tongue and nation. You'll be fishing 
for men and for women across the world. Fruitful disciples make other disciples. And I think this as well is notable here is that fruitful disciples journey with other disciples. As powerful by the Spirit of God, as significant, as influential as Paul was, arguably the most influential Christian of all time, he very rarely traveled alone. I don't think it's just coincidence that there's this long list of names of, of men and there's several women in the New Testament noted as his partners in ministry and those who served him and served the ministry. He rarely did ministry alone. And when you find him alone, notably, what do you find him doing? Come to me as soon as you can. Bring bring the parchments and bring my cloak to me. That's what you find him saying in 2 Timothy when he's in a, a prison cell at the end of his life. He's like, try to come before winter. So when he is alone, like you see him notably um, commending those who have been a vessel of grace in his life, talking about those who had injured him and inviting those who can come to him to come quickly because he wants to what? To not be alone. It's good to be with the fellowship of other believers, to be encouraged in the presence of other people of God. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and then 19 through 22, I'd encourage you to read that part, um, but here's just a brief section of it. In verse 9, Paul says, do your best to come to me soon. In verse 19, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Trophimus is one of the people that's traveling with him in our text. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. What's the point? 17 times in 12 verses, Paul talks about individuals that affected or were connected to his ministry. That's not accidental. And it's all over the place. Like every single one of his letters at the beginning and or at the end has a significant relational tone to it. All those who served with him. We already heard about Priscilla and Aquila in previous chapters. Those who put their neck on the line for Paul. The fruitful disciples don't journey through this life and through ministry alone. Fruitful disciples make disciples and fruitful disciples journey with other disciples. Maybe just think of it this way. If you were to write a letter to your family, like Paul writes letters in the New Testament, if you were to somehow capture this season of life and you're writing a letter to someone to describe to them your season of life, what names would you find in it as those who are a means of encouragement in your life right now? And if you don't have a name or names, that's problematic. You, just like me, need individuals in your life close enough to you to encourage you to exhort you, to admonish you, to not only say, hey, keep running hard, I see God's grace in your life, but also to say like Paul did to the Galatians, you fool, what are you doing? You foolish Galatians, like have you abandoned so quickly the word that I gave you? We're all foolish at times. We need people to be able to look us in the eyes who love us and graciously with humility to challenge us, to confront us, to conform us to the image of Jesus. Fruitful disciples journey with other disciples. So Luke, Paul, and others meet up again in Troas, and here we have this interesting kind of story at the end. Let's read verses 7 through 16. Sorry, I'm laughing because of what's about to come 
And I, uh, I don't have a good poker face right now. So, Verses 7 through 16, let's read it together. <clears throat> on the first, I'll say they're in Troas together on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, these believers who were gathered, we don't know how many, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. So Luke's talking first person, so he was there. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is a way that Luke speaks several times. He basically is saying that they were really comforted. They were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So we're going to go back to this section with Eutychus just to make a couple observations and encouragements before I finish off. Um, they gathered together to break bread, to take the Lord's Supper. So there's this upper room kind of moment in Troas. So Paul's there with Luke, with others, and they're gathered to, to, to be at the Lord's table, seemingly much like the upper room of Jesus and his disciples. They're breaking bread together to hear the word of God, to be encouraged in the presence of one another, to have their hearts steeped in the gospel. And Paul, the apostle and pastor, talks with them and he preaches like he preaches a long long sermon it goes to midnight first off and there's a whole lot of lanterns being lit but not only that so this, this side note this young man dies in the middle of the sermon it's kind of a side note by Luke is like hey this guy fell asleep and seemingly like people uh, who have spent more time on this than I have talked about the Greek verbs and how it seemed like like maybe Eutychus was fighting sleep. Like you've been that student in class that like you're doing the, the head nod for like 15 minutes. Like he was really trying, like fighting the good fight and he was overcome eventually by sleep. And he went careening to his death. Like it's funny, right? So Paul calmly stops the sermon. He's like, hey, don't worry. His life is in him. Everybody's probably like, he's dead. <laughs> There's no life in this guy. And Paul's like, hey, everybody stay calm. His life is in him, and seemingly he just gets back up because Paul goes back up, breaks some more bread, keeps preaching. He's there to do one thing. Like, you're not going to interrupt my sermon, young man. So first off, like, I, I love the fact that someone fell asleep during Paul's sermon. Much comfort to the hearts of pastors <laughs> across the land. All the pastors said Amen. But he preached a long sermon, right? So in all fairness to Paul, it might have been a really good one, but, but this guy goes careening out the window and he comes back to life. So there's a little bit of 
bringing him back to life, and everybody goes back up, and he continues on uh, in the word. So let me just say one thing, and this is going to seem a little bit, this is not a moment to try to leverage, like, hey, don't fall asleep during sermons, or you're going to die. That's the lesson I want you to walk away with. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the essence of this message. Like, you shouldn't fall asleep during sermons, but I will say this on a more serious note, as I have had people fall asleep during my messages, but not 30 minutes in, five minutes in. And I'm thinking to myself, I haven't even had the chance to get boring yet. But there's something in that that I do want to highlight just for a moment. If you give me like the, the moment as your friend, as your pastor, it's like when I, when I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, like are we ready to hear from God? Like, are we, like when we come to be here together, are we really anticipating that we're going to hear from God? Because I would submit to you, if we are falling asleep sometimes, maybe most, depending on the circumstances, depending on when you worked and the details of the night before. There's, there's going to be moments if you fall asleep during a message, it's because your heart doesn't come expecting to hear from God. I think that can be true, especially when you fall asleep five minutes into a message. Because there's something about, and if I could just take some liberty for a moment, there's something about preparing for the moment where you're anticipating hearing from God. Do we actually prepare for that moment? Like, do we go to bed, and when we're worshiping on a Sunday morning, am I going to bed at a reasonable time to get up sharp because I'm expecting to hear from God? Like, I'm going to hear from the Word of God. And it's a big deal. It's important. It's a joyful moment to hear from the King of the universe, the Savior of my soul, and I want to be ready. I want to be sharp. Now, I get the luxury of preaching every Sunday. It's difficult to fall asleep during your own sermon. But I would, I would say that all of us need to make an effort to make sure that we give Sunday morning engagement with the Word of God our best foot forward. Like, prepare for that moment. Prepare your heart. Prepare your mind. Prepare your body physically. Get rest so you can be engaged with the Word of God and show up expecting to hear from Him. I think there's also the presence of this. Haley and I were talking about this this afternoon. As you look at this setting, like there were many lamps lit. And assumedly, Paul, regardless of the number of hours he was preaching, people wanted to hear the sermon. They came eager to hear from God through Paul. And they stayed for a long time. And I just wonder if some of the challenge for us in our culture is like everything is so accessible. Even sermons and messages are so accessible. Information is so readily available to us. And we're so uh, needful of entertainment. Like it can become really difficult to come and to sit in tune with the Spirit of God and the Word of God delivered in such a way we're actually going to benefit from it. And it doesn't just become like some checkbox of spiritual disciplines. Yeah, we come, we sing, we sit down, we stand up, we hear preaching, and then we sing one song and then we go. No, like we're, we gather here because we feel like this is immensely important for the people of God. Like we invest hours to try to match songs with the truth of scripture and Chris pray over the set and as we labor to preach, we try to do it to the best of our ability because we believe this, this moment matters for the people of God. And so do we treat it individually as we come like it actually really matters to our soul? 
And I'm not assuming that isn't the case for everybody here. In fact, I think it is for, for many, if not most of us, but all of us could stand to benefit from just making sure that we're doing all we can to be prepared to hear from God, much like this upper room seemed to be ready. Do we possess the same hunger and interest? Do we come together on Sunday morning and Saturday night with eagerness and expectation? Have we prepared our hearts and our bodies to be sharp when we're present? 1 Timothy 4.13, I was reminded of this when, when Pastor Bill was reaching, reaching, reading the psalm earlier. First um, Timothy 4.13, Paul encourages Timothy, he's like, until I return to you, do this. It says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So that it's appropriate for us to read Scripture. No elaboration. Like, no preaching involved. Like, we're just reading the Word of God that is living and active. So at times, I think if there's something in our hearts, I'm like, man, this psalm is sure long. There's something in our hearts that probably needs to change. We need to come like eager to hear from the word of God in whatever form it might be delivered. Certainly just to sit and hear it read to us should be like balm to our souls. As we come every single Saturday now, but Sunday mornings in the future, I just want to encourage us, much like these people that gathered in that room on that night, and I wish we could take the Lord's Supper together tonight, but we didn't, I just didn't prepare enough to have that ready for us. Like, are we coming with an expectation of hearing from God, being reminded of the soul-stabilizing truths of the gospel, and that statement that actually is, there's a plaque that goes into our, our new building on the doors to the sanctuary that's from Psalm 100. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So as we come tonight, as we come on Sunday mornings, whenever the Lord gives us the opportunity to gather, do we come with expectation, like a deep gladness that we get to be here again with one another? Do we expect to hear from him? And do we take encouragement away, just like in our quiet time, our our alone time with God, to where God is positioning us, like this next week, now as we go from here, to be the means of encouragement to other people in the body of Christ and even around our city. I want us to take a minute and just uh, particularly confess maybe ways, just, just for a minute now, as I invite the worship team back up. I want you to bow your head with me and as we think about maybe particular ways where we have maybe lost sight of expecting God to speak and to work when we gather together, I want to ask you to maybe survey your own heart in that regard, and then also that God would grow us in our view of encouragement and the role that it's to play in our lives um, as we deliver encouragement to other believers. That maybe God would move in our hearts even tonight to put a, a name in our heads, a person on our hearts to, to deliver encouragement to, or that there would be a renewed commitment to doing that as his people. Just take a minute and consider those things. Father, we're not just closing off a service with prayer because that's what we do to in church. 
as we go to confess and as we go to hear from you, we need to, we need you. God, we need you uh, more than we know. So in stillness and in silence, God, would you move and teach, expose and conform us to your image. Father, what sweetness it is to our hearts to hear that you are that you're the God of endurance and encouragement. That you're enduring in your love. You're enduring in your grace. You are faithful when we are faithless. And that even in this brief time we've had tonight, that you, right now, on your throne, and through your spirit within us, that you stand to be the God of our encouragement. So for those of us who have rested in the finished work of Jesus, uh, we thank you for being a God of encouragement and a God of great endurance and great patience with failed and frail people. We bless your name tonight. Great are you and greatly to be praised. And I pray that more and more we'd enter into your courts, as it were, enter into your house with your people, with thanksgiving and praise. We bless your holy name. There's no one like you. There's no one like you, God. Would you shape us into a family of faith where there's rich, constant encouragement flying this way and that to one another, that we would readily celebrate the grace of God in each other's lives, that we would move toward those of us in our midst who are faint-hearted to say, lift up your head, be hopeful. God is near to the brokenhearted and heals those who are crushed in spirit. Would you help us be deliverers of the messages of encouragement from your word? Spirit of God, if there's anyone in this room um, that has a sense of dissonance in their hearts where they've never truly felt your nearness, they've never understood you to be the, the God of encouragement, that they've, they've got some distorted view of who you are, then I pray that tonight would be the, the night where they would surrender all to you. Our only hope is Jesus. Uh, we can't live right enough for long enough in order to earn your favor that it was given to us freely. Your favor is given to us freely through Jesus and his perfect life lived in our place. His death is our substitute, his conquering resurrection that proved he was God and gives us the hope of future resurrection as well. And even now to be able to walk in newness of life. So for any one in this room still holding on to their own self-righteousness, would you strip them of any self-confidence that they would run to Jesus? 
What can we say, Lord, but, but we thank you and we love you. We bless your holy name uh, because there's no one like you. There's no other God worthy of praise. And so we sing this song not as just a way to close the service, but because it's appropriate, it's fitting for your people to give you praise and to give you thanks. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.